Each week, each week of repentance, we know we should repent. Because it says so in the scripture. Otherwise, why bother? So we will open the scripture and read what it has to say. So join with me as we read Lamentation chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Lamentation chapter 3, starting in verse 19. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. For the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to Psalm continues the theme. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we, rem- when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy, remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who sees your infants and dashes them against the rocks the difficult word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 17, verses 3 to 10. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times come back to you and say, I repent, forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant, plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? 
Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Joel, and we are going to look at our passage together. So um, if you're ready, you can pull out Luke chapter seven, uh, 17 on your phones or whatever sort of thing you use. Uh, a book even. A codex. Okay. So... It's interesting, when um, we look at generosity, and generosity is sort of like the, the heart of this for me, when we think about generosity, we think primarily about money, right? We normally think about money when people use the term generosity. But when we think about it, it's not the only currency that we can be generous with, right? If we think about it a little bit more, um, while we always go to money, and generosity certainly isn't less than money, there are other things that we can be generous with. We can be generous with our time. We can be generous with emotional investment. We can be generous with our expertise, right? There are many valuables with which we can be generous. Um, but of all the different areas that we can be generous with, I want today to talk about generosity with relationships, right? How can we be generous in our relationships, in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we connect with each other? Um, now, there are people, and it's quite interesting, and you probably know them, or you might be one of them yourself, that can be very generous with all sorts of things, but not with relationships, right? It's very easy sometimes as well, especially if we are um, someone who might give to charity. Um, sometimes we can say, you know what, I'd love to give to this cause, um, here's a bunch of money, but please don't ask me to get involved, right? Please, no one call me, right? I don't want to be involved relationally, emotionally. I don't want to be engaged with this, but if you want a bunch of cash, here's a bunch of cash, right? And we can want to keep things at, an, at arm's, sort of arm's length, but we don't while we could be generous in other areas. Why? What are we saying when we're doing that? We're saying that my time and my emotions are actually more important than my money. And so I can hand off the money, that's fine, yeah? But don't be invading my emotional space. And so we're generous, but are we radically generous? Are we radically generous in the way that we find so many passages in scriptures, in the scriptures calling us to be? Are we going to be generous in the way that Jesus was generous with us and showed us to be generous with others? Um, when I think of a passage uh, where Jesus is relationally generous, um, I often go to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there. He knows what's coming. He knows that he is about to suffer terribly for his disciples and the world. And he says, guys, I'm suffering here. I need you to do something for me. I want you to pray with me. Stay up with me for one hour. And what do they do? They go to sleep, right? They're exhausted. They can't do it anymore. And they knock out and they go to sleep. And then Jesus wakes them up, right? And he says, you idiots. No, right? Okay. Um, no, he doesn't say that. Jesus wakes them up and he says to them, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. He rebukes them. He tells them, guys, I asked for an hour. How hard could this possibly be? But at the same time, he pays attention to the eagerness, the desire that they had, the earnest desire that they had to stay up with him. And he says, the spirit was willing. He doesn't just bash them over the head, though well he could, and we probably would have done that in his place. But he says, the spirit is willing. He is relationally generous at that moment. And I think we can all go there sometimes. We can all, we can become exacting. We can become unkind. We set unreasonable standards of behavior for all the people around us except for yours truly. Yeah? We can be constantly critical. Now, there are many things we could talk about on this particular topic, but as um, Father Darrell mentioned earlier, we are wearing purple. We are in the days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so, of all the areas of relational generosity that we could talk about, I'm going to talk about forgiveness. And you probably got the hint as we were reading through those scriptures. Um, but that's what we're going to try and engage in more specifically today. And as we do that, I'm going to talk to, talk to you about the enormity of the task, right? How massive it is to forgive, how important it is. I'm going to talk about the practice of forgiveness. And then I'm going to talk about the key to forgiveness, all right? Enormity, practice, and key. All right, so let's start with the enormity of forgiveness. Now, the passages that we have here um, with us today are going to be um, Luke chapter 17, which is the one that we've read. And there's a somewhat parallel passage to Luke 17 in Matthew chapter 18. And um, we'll be looking at those two as we go through this. So, enormity. So Jesus says in our passage, I'm going to try and I have it here on my laptop. Jesus says in our passage... Um, something that sort of straight away communicates the enormity. Um, in verse 5, he says, increase our faith. Yeah, The disciples, their reaction to his call to forgiveness is increase our faith. They're sort of freaked out about what it is that he's actually asking them to do. Now, why is that? Because he begins there in, in uh, verse 3 and 4 and says this, um, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he says, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, it's easy to get lost here. It's easy to get distracted by the number seven, right? Because what you do is you take out your phone and you're just like, okay, that was one. You got six left, right? No. Um, the number seven, as most of us probably know, isn't there to give us an exact amount of times to forgive him. Number eight, you're out, 
okay? The number seven is there in order to say, in order to communicate an idea of completeness, right? World created in six days, seventh day, God says, we're done, okay? Hence the seven-day week that we are all so used to, right? Seven is a number of completion. If um, a potentate in the ancient world called you and said, come, eat seven dishes from my table, right? He didn't mean you're being invited to a seven-course dinner. What he meant was, come and eat everything you want. It's all here. Take it all. It's all for you, right? It's a way of communicating um, completeness. And so the meaning here is different from just you have to forgive seven times. It's actually worse than you think. What he's saying is this that if somebody wrongs you in the way that you would least want to be wronged, if somebody wrongs you so completely and so entirely, you still have to forgive him. If someone hurts you in the worst way possible, you still have to forgive him. That is what Jesus is trying to communicate here in this passage. And so that's why the disciples respond and they say, increase our faith. How on earth are we going to be able to live up to that kind of standard? How could we do it? The enormity is increased when we go back to the passage and we see another little line here that many of us skip over. It's there in verse 3. Now, in my, my version, it says, pay attention to yourselves. In the version we read, I believe it says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, Jesus says, when someone comes to you to ask for forgiveness. Now, the last person that we're watching when someone has wronged us is ourselves. Who are we watching when we have been wronged? That person, right? That guy, the one who did it to me. I'm watching him. Why? Because I want to I look, see for a moment when he fails. Yeah? Wait for a moment when something happens to him. Ha-ha. <laughs> we're sort of like... Um, do you guys know the story of Jonah? Yeah? One of my most hilarious moments is that Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. Everyone repents. God clearly forgives them, but he still climbs up onto the hill next to Nineveh, waiting, watching. Why? Because he's waiting for God to punish them, right? They're going to fail, and God will destroy the city. Lightning, you know, fire from heaven. That's what he's watching for. And it's what makes that last passage in Jonah so silly, so funny, right? Because what we're doing is we're laughing. When we laugh at Jonah being ridiculous, we're, doing, we're laughing at ourselves because we know how many times we've done exactly that. Tolstoy was married to a lady called Sonia. And just before... Um, Tolstoy and Sonia got married, Tolstoy let Sonia look at his diaries. And Sonia went through Tolstoy's diaries, and as she did so, she saw all of his sexual dalliances, right? All the girlfriends that he had had, and all the things that they had done together were there in the diaries. And Tolstoy wanted to be open. He wanted Sonia to know everything. Eighty years later, Sonia, writing in her own journal, yeah, talks about these things that she read in the diary. She was still angry and still upset about all the things that Tolstoy had done before they had even been married. And a historian describes Sonia's 
journal entries like this. For half a century, jealousy and unforgiveness blinded her and destroyed all love for her husband. She could never let it go. It ripped her, it tore at her inside and it destroyed the marriage and her love for her husband. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 tells us, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up so that by it you become defiled. Anger will always tell you it's not anger. Anger refuses to be told that it's anger. Anger will tell you it's something else. No, 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 I'm not angry. I just want justice. No, I'm not angry. I just think that things should be done properly. I'm not angry. Um, I just think that the way that that person behaved just, and this is the way we say it in church, it just isn't Christian. It just isn't right. Does the Bible really think that somebody should behave that way? I don't think so. But I'm not angry. No. I love that person. Really, I do. But things should be done properly. Anger will always tell you that it is not anger. I'm fine. But it defiles us. There are four English words, and for the non-English speakers, these are archaic words, and so forgive me. Um, but um, the words that I want to talk about are wrath, wreath, writhe, and wraith. Wrath is an old English word for, double, uh, for the, an old English word for anger. And by the way, all these words begin with the letter W, if you're going to look them up. Um, Wrath, it's an old English word for anger. Wreath is um, branches, normally branches, um, flowers, all twisted together in a circle, normally placed as a commemoration. To writhe is to twist. And then wraith is a word that even many English people may not know, unless, like me, you are a fantasy nerd, in which case you will know the ring wraiths of the Lord of the Rings. Um, a wraith is a ghost, someone who has died, but who was so terribly wronged and held on to the injustice of their wronging that they could not leave this world, but stayed to punish not only those that hurt them, but anyone who ever did anything similar. A wraith is someone whose eternity is defined by the anger and the hatred that they could not let go of. That is a wraith. To not forgive, brothers and sisters, is to allow ourselves to slowly be twisted. To not let go of wrath is to slowly allow the wreath to form in our hearts and to lie there in our chests commemorating the death of love, to writhe within until eventually we turn into a wraith, someone who can see no joy, no goodness, no rightness in this world, and lives a half-life. That is to live the wraith, and that is the enormity and the importance of forgiveness. And so we come to the practice of forgiveness, how do we practice it? Now, the idea of practicing forgiveness probably sounds strange. Like, why, how, what do you mean practice? Of, it's something that I have to, like, do. Don't I have to feel forgiveness? And in our highly psychologized world, it's, it's natural. All of us think that surely I should feel it. 
But the Bible says no. The Bible says you have to do it. The feeling will come afterwards. First, you have to do forgiveness. You have to engage the practice, the process of forgiveness. You can't just wait for the feelings to come. Um, you can ask my wife, I harp on the, 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 the issue of feelings being the center of who we are, even to the point where some of us believe that what I feel is who I am. Um, I think the Bible's message on the fact that the heart is wicked um, is such an important message for our age. We cannot trust our hearts at all. Um, it's why God gave us a Bible. It's why God gave us a book, a place where we can find truth to balance out what we feel. If we go with what we feel, um, we're going to go somewhere not so great. Okay, so how do we practice forgiveness? First, we have to take the wrongdoer and we must refuse to caricature the wrong of that person. In fact, we must take him or her and we must choose to find the ways in which we are the same, right? We have to look for the commonalities between us and the wrongdoer. Jesus starts off by telling us to forgive who? To forgive our brother, okay? So first of all, he's, he's letting us know that this person is your brother. Now, many of us may say, well, okay, well, sometimes somebody who's, who's doing me wrong isn't my brother, not even my brother in the Lord, all right? It's just some guy, just some person. And so Mark chapter 11, verse 25, comes to rescue us from our self-righteousness and says this, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. You've got to forgive them. So lest we fall into the trap of I only have to forgive my brothers and sisters, remember, we have to forgive anyone. Why? Because the principle is to stress how we find things in common with all of humanity. Our humanity should bind us together and therefore help us not separate apart. There's a guy um, called Miroslav Volf um, who wrote amazingly on the topic of forgiveness. And he says this, forgiveness flounders when I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and when I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Forgiveness flounders when I exclude my enemy from the community of humans and when I exclude myself from the community of sinners. When I stop seeing myself as just as messed up as the other guy, yeah, I'm going to find it very difficult to forgive them. I must remember who I am when I look into the eyes of my wrongdoer. Secondly, I have to remember that that person is as much a human, as much loved, and as much cared for, and as much valued by God as I am. No less, no more. The first thing we do when we practice forgiveness is to bring the other person up, not bring them down. We have to bring them up and don't reduce them to their wrongdoing. So for example, my kid comes to me and lies to me, right? Who ate all the cookies? Not me. All right? Crumbs around the face. Yeah? No, not me. Yeah? Now, I can say, sweetheart, why did you lie? Or I can say, yeah, you're a liar. One says, you've done something wrong, but I love you. The other one says, you are defined 
by this wrong thing that you have done. And with kids, we can sometimes even transform them. They can actually take those words and make them part of their own identity. I am a liar. Yeah? But it's not true. We have to refuse to caricature the wrongdoer, raise them up, don't push them down. That's number one. Number two, we have to inwardly, inwardly surrender our right to repayment. When someone wrongs you, they owe you now. Right? When someone messes with you, when someone's done something wrong, they have robbed you of something. Yeah, they have robbed you of reputation. They have robbed you of time. They have robbed you of joy. They have robbed you of something. And straight away in our hearts, we think, oh, he owes me, right? And so we set about planning our repayment, right? How we're gonna get it back, right? And we can do that sometimes actively by gossiping, um, we can do that by attacking them, by bothering them, by insulting them, by doing so. But many of us don't do those things. We wait in our hearts and we root against them. We wait like Jonah for the day, for the moment, for the hour when their comeuppance will arrive and then we will be happy and then we will rejoice. The reason, there is a reason that the term to forgive in our passage in Greek is a term used for actually forgiving debt, for forgiving monetary. Why? Because that's what it creates within us. We have to learn to forego the repayment. If I was to walk into a party and I was wearing a beautiful, um, this isn't a dress, by the way, it's a robe. Um, if I was to walk in with a beautiful garment into a party and somebody was to spill wine. Now, normally if you're me, I spill food on myself just fine. I don't need anyone else to help me. But if food gets spilled on my clothing and it's ruined, it can't come out, it's not gonna come out, yeah? I have two choices. I can ask for repayment or I can forgive. And then the cost of the garment, I have to absorb myself. I have to pay it. Yeah, debts don't, get un don't go unpaid. They have to get paid by someone. And I'm either gonna try and get it from the other person or I have to pay it myself. There's the story of this guy. Um, he had a fiance, right? They were about to get married. And before the wedding, she left him. And she left him for another guy. And every time in the community, someone came to talk to him about that girl, he had a choice. And every single time, he chose to say something nice about her instead of something bad. Every time he chose to compliment and be kind and resist the urge to gossip, yeah, it hurt him. It was painful. It was awful. But every time he did it, he became a little bit more free. Every time he did it, he was able to release the hurt and the pain a little bit more. And the writhing and the wreathing of the heart didn't happen. And he was able to, to push away the wraith within by resisting the urge to try and take revenge and grasp repayment for himself. Now you may ask, okay, so I'm going to be doing this forgiving and I'm going to be caring, but don't I get to confront, 
right? Isn't there a moment where the person has to deal with the fact that they messed with me? Don't I get to do some of that? Well, yeah, but in order to rebuke or to confront, we have to go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, our parallel passage says this, that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now this passage says rebuke, and you're like, yeah, baby, that's what I was waiting for, rebuke. That's what this guy needs. But it says, it gives a purpose to what we have to do. We have to go to gain our brother, right? If you go, having not settled the repayment in your heart, if you go, having not absorbed the debt in your heart, before you go, you will just be going for vengeance. You will just be going to exact the wrong and not to gain your brother or sister. Brothers and sisters, please listen to me. Absorb the debt and then go to your brother. Then speak to them. Tell them what has happened. Tell them how it hurt you and try to gain them back, to reconcile, to reform the relationship. We must forgive inwardly first before we go and engage our brothers and sisters. That's why Jesus says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves, brethren. Okay. So we've talked about the enormity of forgiveness. We've talked about the practice of forgiveness, but we're still left in verse four, Yoel, right? Increase our faith. How on God's green one am I going to be able to do that? So let's talk about it. And now we get to go past verse five. And I'll read it for you, um, because if you are like me, uh, you may have forgotten what it says. It says this. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come into the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say, oi, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he, think the does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, let me try and explain all that. The servants in our passage, um, they're not slaves. Well, not slaves the way that we would maybe think of a slave. It is different. Back in the ancient world, um, especially in, the, in the, the, the land of Israel, if you fell into debt, okay, still this theme continues. If you fell into debt, you had two options. Either, and this was the, the one that could very well happen, you're sent to, day, to jail, right? And sometimes you're sent to jail and that's it, it's over. But the Torah commands, don't send them to jail, but rather bring them into your home. And in your home, they will serve and they will learn and then they will earn off their debt and then they get to go free, right? But they're in your home in order to pay your debt. And it has to be remembered that especially in that culture, if they're in your house, right, paying off the debt, it's because of your mercy. It's because you were kind to them and instead of sending them off to jail, you had them come into your house and they're paying off the debt that they owe, that they fell into. 
And so when they're there and they're working away their debt, right, of course, they're the ones that should be grateful, right? The master is bringing them in, right? You borrowed 50,000 pounds. You don't have 50,000 pounds. And so you're going to work your 50,000 pounds instead of me sending you to jail. Dude, that's so awesome. Thank you so much. That's the attitude that's supposed to be had. And that's why he, when he speaks in the passage, he says, if some guy comes in from the field, these guys that are working for you, right? You're not going to say, hey, come down, eat my food. No, like I'm doing you a favor. I'm doing you a solid. I'm letting you come in and work off your debt. You're not going to start treating them like, you know, Lord of the manor. So, so Jesus starts off by saying to them, imagine you're the master. Imagine you're the king of the household and you had a bunch of people who owed you debts, right? Would you tell them, come and sit at the table? No, right? He's putting us in the picture, the, the place of the master in the story. And we're obviously going to say, yeah, of course not. This person owes me. They come in. I'm being kind and forgiving and merciful. They're working off the debt. Doesn't mean you get to sit at my table. Go make the food, bring me some food, and then you can eat, right? This is normal. He puts them in the position of the master, and then he flips it. And then he says, no, but in this situation, you're not the master, you're the servant. And God is the master that you are serving. So what is he saying? He's doing this because Jesus's, most of Jesus' theological conversations take place with Pharisees. Now, Pharisees um, are stereotypical, self-righteous people. People who are religious, who came to God and basically said, God, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, you owe me. Their relationship to God was, I'm doing all these mitzvahs, I'm doing all these commandments, you should be paying me. And they've obviously got it wrong because, bro, you're not the king, God is the king, you are the servant. And so what he's doing is he's trying to bring them in and say, hey, you're the master, <laughs> you're the master, that's how you would treat people. Then he flips it to remind them, to teach them, you're not the king in this position. You're not the one that's handing out the mercy in truth. The one who's handing out the mercy is God. You are the recipient of mercy. And so when you find yourself in a situation, when you are owed and you are, you need to hand out the mercy as well. In this passage, Jesus is trying to point out to us that we are not the king. And so you ask, the one verse I'm yet to explain, what is that mustard seed all about? Why is it sitting there in the middle of this passage? The point of the mustard seed is for Jesus to say that if you understood just one little bit, a mustard seed's worth of the gospel, if you could see Jesus on the cross, and feel and understand and recognize and connect with all that he has done for you, you would be able to forgive. If you could understand how our king, if you could see and trust and know what he has done for us, you would see it. Why? Because the only way to be able to forgive, brothers and sisters, is to be able to see the king who became a servant on your behalf. The king who came and entered this world and served his whole life sin-free and then went to the cross, writhing and wreathing and dying 
so that you could be free. Brothers and sisters, don't let anger sit in your heart. Don't become wraiths. Don't give yourself over to it. Watch yourselves. Practice forgiveness and find freedom in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.